Credit paying Hermosa finds the target, Swinton it was. There's a little short kick from Hodge, who gets the bounce. It's there for Banks. He flicks it out the back door and a try on debut for Tom Wright. What a start, Australia. Welcome to episode eight of the Rugby Fixation. Uh, we're back in the culmination of the Tri-Nations tournament for 2020. Uh, we've wrapped up what's ended up being a pretty exciting uh, series of fixtures. And now with me to break it all down is um, Brother Curtis. So, Cody, how are you doing? Yeah, going well. Uh, would have been a little bit happier to have finished off uh, the Tri-Nations with a win on the weekend, but uh, all in all gone quite well over here. Freezing cold. Yeah, it's a little bit um, a little bit of a, a downer, I guess, having that draw. I think I said in the podcast before that that we needed something to try and uh, get rid of that sour taste of the draw from the fixture beforehand, and <laughs> we doubled down. You know, we, we thought, well, we can go on better. Really reminiscent of 2017 where we had the two draws against South Africa, just couldn't beat them in either case, both home and away. Um, this one probably slightly worse because Argentina is a lesser opposition and both fixtures were in Australia, but I'm sure we'll unpack all of that as we break down the game and the series as a whole. So we've already mentioned that it was a 16-all draw with the Pumas. Um, we both scored one more point than the previous fixture, which was a 15-all draw. Um, I'm not entirely sure if it was better or worse in the last game. I'd be keen to unpack that, but uh, Cody, you've seen the game. You watched this one. How did you actually see this game unfold? Were you, were you thinking this was an improvement from our last performance against them? No, I think this one was probably even worse. This is this was a team that didn't have two of the better performers from Argentina in Matera and Petty. Um, they also didn't have, like, Cabelli wasn't playing, who was really quite a dominant player in their first couple of games this year. And they... Uh, I, I think the handling from now on was just terrible, but uh, the conditions were a lot worse. I thought we, I thought we would have capitalised a little bit more after having two weeks to prepare for this game and after having already versed Argentina and already playing another five games this year. So I, I think more than anything, it was just a backward step rather than a continued step forward, which was a little bit frustrating, but. Uh, I mean, a, a draw is better than a loss, but we just shouldn't really be drawing that game. Yeah, look, you know it there. We, we've brought this up slightly um, because it was something that we took away from, I think, that first match. They had all their eggs into that New Zealand game, Argentina, um, that first match where they you know, put heart and soul in, they took everyone by surprise and won. They meant that second game, the Wallabies had no reason not to know what to expect. They knew what... Um, they could do against Argentina because New Zealand still scored three tries against them. Uh, they knew how they should approach that game and that it was a serious um, fixture, but they still just didn't deliver. So to do that again off the back of saying, well, now we've personally played them and still can't deliver, that's really quite the indictment, I think. And I know it's a new team, but it is showing just a little bit of inability to learn from that. Um, I'm not going to be too negative about it because it is, you know, First season for Rennie, he's still getting to know what players um, perform well, which uh, strategies work well with these players. But I would have been hoping for a little bit more. I think they were all hoping for a little bit more. So I'm very keen to see how they bounce back in Super Rugby AU next year. But there's a long wait before the next test match and Wallabies fans don't really have anything to cling on to 
given the win against New Zealand's kind of, um, you know, been washed out by those two draws. Yeah, I just want to tie something we said last weekend. We were giving New Zealand big wraps for getting um, all 10 of their scrums and all 16 of their lineouts, just meaning that they had 26 attacking opportunities to work from. Would you be able to hazard a guess as to how many uh, scrums and lineouts Australia won? I'm not even going to bother guessing. I'll leave that one to you. I have no idea. We actually got all eight. 70%? No, no. Here's the thing. We got all eight of our scrums, so eight from eight, and 19 yep. from 20 lineouts. We only lost one lineout. So we actually had more opportunities to attack from set piece in New Zealand. Yeah. Wow. And then the handling error stats? The handling error stats are <laughs> definitely high. We, we turned the ball over just almost as if that was a strategy. It was, yeah, it, it was just died. But I, I wanted to bring that up because I thought what we said last week, if you do the simple things well, it's really hard to perform poorly. You know, it, more often than not, we'll just score points based off um, converting that um, pressure into points through penalty goals, or just if you've got constant attack, sooner or later, you're going to wear down the defences. So New Zealand in their 26 attempts off, um, you know, set piece, they were able to set up some nice attacking moves and they didn't score all of their points from it because um, obviously they had Will Jordan counterattacking really well, but they still managed five tries. We had more platform and managed one try. And it was from the rock. Yeah. Also, it was our lineout. The lineouts produced two tries for us. But in all these games, the whole Tri-Nations, the whole Bledisloe Cup, we've not managed a single try resulting from a scrum. So I'm of the belief that our scrum's actually quite good. Do you think that we're utilising our scrum well? I think if you can just get quick ball out of a scrum and not give away a penalty on your own feed and not waste too much time in the scrum, then your scrum's pretty decent. Uh, our scrum isn't an attacking weapon in that we like we get a really good percentage of penalties and we, we play off it really well. But I think the fact that we don't lose our scrums the way that we've lost our lineouts historically uh, makes it one of our better set-piece options. Uh, but that is, I think, that our improvement in set piece is a really, really big thing, and that's if it can be maintained, that'll that'll make the world be much better in the years to come, because we've definitely struggled in the past with with poor set piece accuracy. Yeah, uh, look, we haven't been able to hit the target in lineouts a lot of the time, or with our scrum, perhaps we've tried to be a little bit too tricky with it, or tried to wheel, and it's just ended up in penalties for us. I'm glad we we're able to keep our side of it held up fairly well and we were able to convert some of those um, you know, pieces of scrum dominance into penalty goals. But the, the telling stat for me is that we're just given so many opportunities and not taking any of them. A lot of that stems from Hooper's indecision. Um, well, it's not indecision. His reluctance to take the points when they were on offer in the first 15 minutes. You know, we had a lot of kickable penalties that weren't taken there. And I think it just it really heaped the pressure on us when you realise, hey, we've had about 90% of the possession in this phase and we've got zero points. Um, Argentina's first chance they took was from the halfway line and they got it. You know, so they yeah. took every point on offer and it just came up trumps. Yeah, there was uh, there were definitely plenty of opportunities to take at the start when I was watching. I thought maybe the Wallabies are going to try and get this 101 point. To, to try and make up the difference and win the Tri-Nations and that was maybe their mentality and their belief in the team but then 
after about 10 minutes, you probably should have realised, no, that it's not going to happen. Unless, you, unless you'd scored four tries in the first 10 minutes, then you probably got to give up that dream. Um, but, yeah, there are definitely plenty of opportunities on offer. Uh, I also think that it is a little bit more difficult to have confidence in, in your kicking when our... Well, I, I was surprised that O'Connor didn't kick for goal, to be honest, at the start, um, for those closer range kicks. Hodge went okay, um, but... Yeah, I don't think we have the same confidence in our kickers that Argentina have in Sanchez and England have in Farrell and and the rest of them. So I think that'll that'll come. And uh, yeah, there, there were definitely some captain's decisions that could have been made better, but that's all in retrospect. You never know. You never know how how it's going during the game or what the directive is from the coach and and the coaching team. So. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it probably could have been a different result if some more points were taken at the start. Um, but I think that's probably one of the things that you can tell Dave Rennie isn't just doesn't just want to be a Northern Hemisphere team that takes three points and builds pressure that way. He wants to show his hacking flair, and potentially that's another another thing where the Tri Nations are gone. We haven't won the Tri Nations. Let's try and get our players with some experience running the ball and playing with the ball and working on our set piece, which. Obviously, working on SFP did it did us favours in this game, um, but yeah, maybe maybe there was a little bit more development to be seen. You wanted to see some more of players after realizing that we probably weren't going to win by 101 points. It, it's a challenging thing because he's got to choose what strategy is going to work for him. Because the two best teams, um, I guess, of the last year, um, England have been the form team um, this year. I'd say they've just shown that, you know, if, if you're going to win matches, you don't need to be attacking well. You need to be defending well. You need to take the points on offer. And if you do have those free players like a Johnny May who can sort of break the line and score some nice tries, that's great. But otherwise, just rely on doing the basics well. And they've had a phenomenal year. You know, they were a little bit uh, rusty in their automations final with France. But um, I, I want to tie those two points in because you were saying how... England have a trusted kicker. This is the thing that I think, I guess, separates the view people have on Owen Farrell and the view people have on Rhys Hodge. So Rhys Hodge has copped an absolute shellacking because he's had three chances to win a game for us. And I'm, I'm specific with that language. I don't think he's lost us the match because he's done well in the moments leading up to it. But he's had three opportunities to win the match for us. Now, the first kick was from ages out um, against New Zealand and hit the post. Uh, in that second game, he had a crack in about the 77th minute and uh, just straight off to the right. And again, in this game, he had a chance right at the end to try and get us to a victory. And again, it went off to the right. Now, in all of those games, that was the only kick that Hodge missed. So yeah. people say he's maybe not a pressure kicker. You know, he's not, not like the Bernard Iceman Foley or, you know, whatever you want. But to say that he's a bad kicker isn't very accurate. And a lot of people have been saying he's lost us these matches. What I want to touch on was Owen Farrell. So he kicked the penalty to beat France in the Nations Cup. They only got up 22 to 19 and an extra time he kicked the penalty. Everyone's lauding him a hero, but he kicked four from eight in that match. You know, he missed four other opportunities. Mm. And, and he himself said, he, he came out with a quote afterwards saying um, that he had all these other opportunities to win the match and he felt bad, but he was lucky that he was able to atone for that at the end and um, that his lack of accuracy co uh, didn't cost them the game. 
it's the exact opposite of what's happened to Hodge. Hodge has been keeping the Wallabies in the game with his scoreboard pressure. Um, and it's these moments right at the end that he's just not quite getting it. So I think he should have gotten one of those kicks, you know, like it would have been nice to have got one extra win, but I'm definitely not blaming him for the result. Um, and I think it's just, it's interesting to see the comparison between Hodge and Farrell, you know, when Hodge has kicked better than what Farrell did, but one resulted in a win, one didn't. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely, I think there's definitely um, probably a little bit too much hatred going towards Hodge. He, he's always been the person that is sort of the last resort kicker for the Wallabies and that he, he'll come on off the bench and he'll be given the ball in the, in the 70 plus minutes to kick a long ranger. Um, and there's obviously a lot of pressure on those, but maybe there's not as much pressure when you're kicking from 55 metres out versus when you're kicking from 30 metres out because the expectation 55 out is that it's a very hard kick and the expectation 30 out is that, okay, maybe it's a bit easier to kick. So maybe, uh, and I don't know, maybe maybe the mentality out of this, oh, I'm going to go for it because I've got the longest boot, but I'm not that confident. Like if I miss it, it's not the end of the world because it's an extraordinarily hard kick and not many other people in the world can kick it from 55 out versus all right, I'm 35 out. Um, and then some of the best kickers in the world are getting these kicks and the pressure moments. So I, I definitely don't think, I, I agree, nothing nothing to do with our losses is Rhys fault. But yeah, there, there is that, I think that, that pressure build up that, um, I mean, Owen Farrell has been trusted with the kicking tee for almost the last, what, seven years. So when when you, he probably gets a lot more confidence from his coaching staff and his captain and everything else than, than Hodgewood, who's been sort of a fringe starting bench player, doesn't really have a position, doesn't often kick for goal unless it's outside 50 metres, and then has now been given the task to be the kicker once O'Connor got injured and had pretty poor kicking performance in the first game. So he, he probably hasn't built up that that faith from other people to, to sort of steal those wins in, from the Wallabies like Farrell has, who's had plenty of opportunities to win big games and has done it many times before. Yeah. The, the biggest thing that Hodge needs to do is, I think after each kick, just link his fingers as Farrell does, just to really let everyone know that, you know, chain can't be broken. He's on lock. <laughs> um, that's the only thing missing from his game plan. Otherwise, all the kicks would be great. Look, we'll leave it at that for the Pumas game because I want to look at how the Tri-Nations as a whole has fared for the Wallabies and also for New Zealand and Argentina. You know, we're an Australian podcast, but I do want to touch on, um, you know, our competitors because uh, they were the successful competitors. We've finished as Tri-Nations. Um, you know, initially I thought we had a chance of actually winning the whole thing, but we're now in a position where we've got the wooden spoon. So, Cody, I'll, I'll let you run through it first because I'm keen to hear what you say and then give my thoughts afterwards. How do you actually um, rank each of the three teams and their respective Tri-Nations series? I think New Zealand would be underwhelmed with their performance despite winning it. I don't think that's a performance that they'll be happy with. I think Argentina will be the most improved from the competition or most exceeded expectations the most. Um, and I think Wallabies would probably have a good belief in them that they can perform, but then also just that, that realisation that, 
that's not enough and that you actually need to win games and you need someone who can stand up and, and close out those big games. Um, so I think, I think there's enough to look forward to in each of the teams, New Zealand, that they can not play their best and have only win two games from four and still win the Tri-Nations. That's sort of a boat of confidence, especially with the, the cycle of new players that they've got coming in and their new coach and, they'll be happy to just finish that series with a win despite some more average performances. Uh, Argentina with a second, the first time they've ever come second in the Tri-Nations. Um, they also beat the All Blacks, which is monumental, and they got two draws with Australia. So, And that's how they finished with the draw in Australia despite all of the off-field stuff that they had happening. So I think they'll be pretty happy with that, pretty keen to get home. Uh, Australia yeah, saw, saw promise, but I think given it was on home soil, we were we were put into a position after a gallant Argentinian win over New Zealand where it was sort of ours to lose. Um, so I think I think Australia have would have the most sour taste in their mouth of all the three teams. But with the with the yeah new cycle of players that we had coming in, the new coach as well. Um, a couple of really key injuries in Tamura and O'Connor and Lucan as well, who's out for for both of the well for the majority of both of the Argentina games. Like that's a that's a big loss for one of our better performing forwards at the start of the year. Um, I, I, I think I think there's positives to take from it, um, but there's yeah the end result of coming third and having three draws in a, in a calendar year. So I, I think that doesn't give you too much excitement. And I don't think anyone likes a draw. I don't think you, you come out of even a draw with New Zealand and go, geez, that's phenomenal that we got to draw that one. Or, and then definitely not the Argentina ones. Yeah. Uh, the only issue with the draw is that the first game was the draw. And I thought that was sort of like the only draw we'd have for the season. And it showed a lot of promise. You know, I, I wasn't expecting much in that first game because of, the new players, the new system, new coach. And uh, I thought, wow, 16 all draw. Um, and that game was in New Zealand. Um, so to me, I took a lot away from that, thinking this is really impressive. You know, we're on for a winner here. It's a very different situation when you're playing Argentina in Australia and it's an Argentinian team that hasn't had the same preparation that New Zealand or Australia have had. So it, it, it's very concerning. Yeah. Um, if I was to do the glass half full, you know, I'd say that we didn't lose to Argentina, but I don't think that's the standard that the Wallabies should be setting for themselves. And this is in no way supposed to be disrespectful to Argentina. I'm really impressed that they uh, that they've been so competitive. But by the same token, um, the Wallabies have to hold themselves to a standard as well and should be aiming to improve. And just by a matter of fact and statistics from previous years that's a game that they normally would win and should win, especially when given two opportunities to. So that's the only um, downside there. Look, I just want to go through how I saw some of the, I guess, teams and their performances, because you said that New Zealand, um, you know, the two wins, two losses deserved um, that top spot, that they were the best team. The thing that stood out, they're the only team that attacked. They're the only team that actually, you know, used the ball when they had it and scored so Argentina in their four games only managed two tries you know it was really built off that scoreboard pressure which is something that Australia needs to do a little bit better so they only managed yep. two tries in four games so it's not a lot um 
Australia, we got four tries in those four games. So again, like really not enough, especially when two of those tries were in that first, um, I guess it was our second match against New Zealand at Suncorp. Um, and, and that looked really impressive, but that was pretty much the majority of our attacking play. You know, a cute chip kick over the top from Reese Hodge and a crushing um, carry from Daniela Tupo, what, three metres from the line? You know, a nice pick and drive. So I'd like to have seen a little bit more. But when yeah. you look at those, you know, two sets of players, you think, okay, well, it must have been a, a low-scoring competition. New Zealand scored 16 tries. You know, like... Yeah, crazy. So much more than everyone else. And when you think, well, how, how do they do that? They had the same number of wins as Australia and Argentina. It's just that when they play well, when they attack well, when they put a team to the sword, it's not because, you know, they're rocking up and they're slightly better. They really dominate. And that's something that Australia needs to be able to do. Now, I put something on the Rugby Fixation Twitter account of our last results against um, a lot of other nations. Our last game against England, we lost 40 to 16. Our last game against Scotland, we lost 53 to 24. Um, our last game against South Africa, even, I think it was 35 to 17. So when teams are beating us, so often they're beating us by a considerable margin. We're not in the game. Um, yeah. And that's just not something that really ever happens with the All Blacks. That's something that I'd like to be able to, you know, fix and try and adjust. But look, as I was looking at the rest of the games, I was trying to come at it from a purely maths point because the draw left a really sour taste in my mouth. So I thought if I just go through and have a look at all the Tri-Nations fixtures, um, rank it out of 10 for each country, I can at least work out how I think they went. And yep. I was pretty happy with how it ended up. Um, I didn't have the Wallabies with a pass mark, so I'm keen to hear how you feel about that. I had them with a slightly above four out of 10 when it averaged out. Because I figured looking at that game, the 43 5 losses to New Zealand, it's a one out of 10. Like that's dreadful. It's We turned up, Lalesio got a good enough try, but otherwise had a pretty average debut. Um, but, you know, <laughs> turned up and didn't. Uh, remained scoreless, but it was a record loss. So that was dreadful. Yeah. Uh, the win over All Blacks, you know, it's the pinnacle of what you can do in rugby unions beat the All Blacks. So I gave that a nine and a half. Uh, the 15 all draw with Argentina, I gave three out of 10. And then the 16 all draw, I gave three out of 10 as well. Um, the only reason I didn't think it was worse is because I guess in that one, we had to come from behind. I mean, I don't know if that's a great thing, but the fact that we were able to come from behind um, you know, with a man down with that red card made it seem slightly, slightly better. It's still pretty dismal. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty fair, to be honest. Um, you, you can't really rate your record loss anything better than a one out of 10. So nah. it sort of completely mitigates the win that you get. And then yeah, exactly. with the two draws against Argentina, you'd never be happy with that. Well, the thing is, when, when you factor in the other two games, I would consider giving the Wallabies a pass mark for the season. Um, and again, it comes down to whether you're being pessimistic or optimistic about it. You can look at it as one win from six games. You can look at it as two losses from six games. Um, either way, the draws were real blight because they sort of provide a grey area um, for the story of how the season went. It makes it quite murky. Um, but I think that first draw with New Zealand, I, I gave that an eight. I think that was a really impressive performance. Um, 
probably the best drawer I've seen us be involved in, just in terms of expectations and performing. Uh, and then the 27 to seven loss, like still a pretty big loss. I gave that a four out of 10. Um, Cause I actually thought other than a 10 minute period outside of the half, we played pretty well. So yeah, there's a lot to build on. There's a lot to like New Zealand and Argentina are pretty um, straightforward as well. I think New Zealand will be really unhappy with their loss to Argentina. And I think they're going to be pretty unimpressed as well with that loss in Brisbane. I know they changed the team up, but I think, after two pretty comprehensive wins, they would have liked to have gone through probably the whole four matches of Australia without having lost. Um, and Argentina, obviously, like that one 38-0 loss aside, had a fantastic series. You know, they'll be really happy with that and can build hugely on that. And it's actually made me really keen to see some of those Argentinian players sign for the Western Force. And yeah. potentially um, a few others coming into Super Rugby Rumours that Santiago Chocobaris will feature for the Blues because um, Leon McDonald's left a space open in his squad. But you and I will probably break down um, the Super Rugby AU and Alto roller sides in you know the next few weeks. But it, that's made me really keen to see some more Argentinian players stay in the Southern Hemisphere comp. Look, just to tie in with all the rankings, I went through some of the stats again. Like, I'm going to bore everyone the stats, but it's what I love. Um, these are the things that stood out and I think probably provide the blueprint for what Ronnie might need to adjust or work on. And I think it'll tie into some of the listener questions because there was a lot that I liked about this season and it was just sort of those fine touches about, well, how do we get that to work? So Hooper made the second most tackles out of everyone in the whole Tri-Nations, right? So he's, he's a great defender and there were other good defenders with the Wallabies. Um, yet our defence was still easily the worst in the competition. Despite having someone that, you know, as talismanic and as great a tackling leader and defensive leader as Hooper, we still let in the most points. So that was pretty damning to see. Yeah. In terms of uh, carries, we actually had the two highest numbered carries. So uh, Hunter Paisami made 39 carries in the whole Tri-Nations and Harry Wilson made 36. Um, that's great. It's good that they're getting the ball in hand so much. But the problem came with one of the other stats that they dug up, which was the defenders beaten. Neither of them or any Australian, for that matter, featured in the top five defenders beaten. So it means yeah. players for New Zealanders, players for Argentina that are running the ball less, but getting more reward from it. Or, you know, damaging the line more. I think a lot of that comes down to our lack of playmaking, bringing on people. It's sort of just everyone fight for yourself once you get the ball to try and beat that defender, but yeah. not anyone saying, "All right, well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a half break to work with, or I'll get you on the outside shoulder of someone." And yeah, I think I think New Zealand for each defender beaten, that sort of there's another person or two people bringing them on, um, rather than just individual brute talent one-on-one beating defenders there is a little bit of that but i think more often than not it's it's someone with a little bit of a uh, little bit of tact bringing on someone else yeah well we brought that up the last time we spoke with um regard to the playmaker role i was looking at the seven tries that australia scored this year um the first one we had a nice off the top of the line out um james o'connor drew a few defenders in and passed out to corabetti so again, it came down to a corner that playmaking role. Uh, we had two tries uh, courtesy of Nick White. So Nick White had that lovely flick to Dalgoon in the same first game. 
He also did a nice um, sharp pill to Lalasio for his try in the uh, third game. And then in the second game, the one try we got was for the back of a Hannigan line break. But both the line break, uh, the pass in the next phase, and the pass to set up the try um, to Corabetti were all from Matt Timor. Yeah. So in all three games, and for all four of those tries, the tries where we probably looked like we had the most attacking spark, they looked the most creative, the most inventive, it featured either the nine, the 10, or the 12, but in any case, three primary playmakers seeing where the space was and putting people into that space. Unfortunately for us, that was the only time we had all three of those players available. Um, soon after that, Tamu got injured, then after that, O'Connor. And in the last game back, um, we really had O'Connor as the playmaker outside Nick White. We didn't have um, someone else that had that same pair of hands that could see the space the same way. Um, so I think that's going to be one of the big things to look at. It's really highlighted by the fact that in that last game, Australia didn't get one single line break. It was pretty damning. Like, you yes. Try, but even with O'Connor's injection back to fly half, who was, I guess, stable but didn't have a great game, um, not one single line break, which means no one's putting the ball into space well enough for us to be able to use. Whereas you look at Argentina... They had a couple of line breaks, but the one main line break that we think about led to that try. You know, it was a great burst from Escura who then put um, Delgi into space. That's what the Wallabies needed to have done earlier because we've got the wings for it. We've got good finishes, but we've got things like Patea kicking it away or offloading it into no one or knocking it on. Um, The poor guy really had one of his worst performances at any level. So it just comes down to, I think, having that extra playmaker somewhere out there to try and assist us. Um, the only thing I want to tie into those stats as well, because we mentioned that um, defenders beaten, Tom Wright was actually our biggest contributor for line breaks. So he was um, tied for second with um, Jordy Barrett and Caleb Clark with four line breaks. So that's pretty good given he only had the three starts and the three performances yep. um, in total. But just going back to the use of the wingers, so uh, Marika Corabetti in the whole tournament had the most metres ran, which is good and probably not all that surprising, but yet didn't feature in the defenders beaten, didn't feature in the most line breaks. It's it's concerning that we're not utilising these players as we know they can, because Corbetti is a hard person to tackle. He can beat defenders pretty easily. He can definitely find line breaks very easily if he's put into space. It's concerning that he's doing all this work, but we're just not getting probably the stats that indicate a bit more attacking capability, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I mean, he's always got, he's always got that work rate, which I think is probably explains the the most run meters because he'll just go all day. Um, But he is also very siloed the way he plays. He's not, he's not sort of running alongside someone too often where he's, he can benefit from someone playmaking, uh, which I think he probably needs to get better at. And then the playmakers need to get better at bringing him on as well. But yeah, there's there's no there's no denying his his work rate and that's sort of told in his in his running stats. And I'm sure if you just include all the stats just running around the park, not just run meters, ball in hand, he'd be up there as well with Hooper. Yeah. Oh yeah, look he would be. And look, I don't want it to just be a stat fest, so I'll, I'll leave the stats there. Um, but I do want to keep looking at ranking and seeing how some of our players go. So we'll move on to the next part that you know we can discuss, which is 
how our new players went. So we had, uh, I think it was 10 players in the end make their Wallabies debut this year, which is great. Um, you often find that after the World Cup, we get an influx of players and normally there's sort of 12 or 13 test matches to try and give them a bit of game time. Obviously with the abridged format this year, we had six matches. So to still get 10 players out there, um, I was really impressed, especially because I think the bulk of these 10 players um, we'll be seeing a lot more of. And even for the ones that we might not be seeing, you know, heaps of, um, or at least heaps of in the near future, I think there's definitely some positives to take away from all of them. So I'm just going to shoot through some of them. Um, and I'm keen to hear what you think about how all these guys went. So um, in the first match, we had three debutants and probably three of the more impressive debutants. Um, so in the match, we had Harry Wilson make his debut uh, number six. Eventually, he went to number eight. Uh, we had Hunter Paisami start in the 13 jersey. Uh, he, of course, eventually went to number 12. And then we had Filippo Dalgunu on the right wing, um, who played there for three matches before um, spending two matches on the bench playing. Um, I think that they were some of the more impressive debutants this year. I, I think Harry Wilson cemented himself as a genuine number eight for us. I think Hunter Paisami... It was funny, even in commentary, they were saying uh, we need to get the ball to someone reliable like Michael Hooper, Marika Korobetti, or Hunter Paisami. You know, this is his first year of international rugby. It's really his first year of club rugby as well. And he's getting mm. plays like that. Uh, and then Dalgunu, he you know, was probably our best attacking threat in that first game against the All Blacks. So how do you see those three as having gone so far? I, when you first said Wilson, I thought, Jesus... I've completely forgotten his debut this year because he plays at a level above someone in the first year of, of Test Rugby. So, yeah, Wilson Wilson would be the number one debutant for the year. Uh, Dalgunu was good, but does... like he, I think that's sort of against... The way he plays at the moment is against uh, what Dave Rennie is trying to do in that it's, it's high high effort and very... Um, very dangerous, but also he's a he's a threat in terms of the amount of penalties he gives away, uh, and how sort of uncomposed he is when he plays as well. So he's he's got the scoring threat. Like he's a very good ball runner, but you got to take what you get, which is a lot of gen, generally a lot of a lot of penalties. He's a good pilferer. It's it's good to have someone that can pilfer the ball in the wider channels, but you, he's not. He's gonna probably give away a penalty and a poor offload or attacking option at least once a game. Um, uh, whereas Tom Wright came in and was that safer option, I found. Yeah, I, I wanted to jump in there to, I guess, remind everyone that Dagoonie summed up that um, description he gave perfectly with his, uh, I think it was the trial match against the Rebels, where he scored five tries but also got red carded for a ridiculous tip tackle that was completely needless. They were already winning by a lot. Like it's those sorts of things that you just think, gee, is this the guy that I want um, in the pressure cooker environment of test match rugby? And you just think we do need someone that can attack like he can, but you also need that level head. You need someone that makes the smart decisions. And, you know, he's still pretty new to rugby, really. I'm keen to see him have another year at the Reds and, you know, hopefully work on those sorts of things. Um, but you're right, um, Tom Wright came on and probably performed that job a little bit safer. So I'm actually going to go to Tom Wright, even though he wasn't the next day, boo, but um, I'm going to go to Tom Wright uh, 
Lockie Swinton and Angus Bell. They all made their debuts um, more towards the back end of the competition. Um, Swinton, obviously, in that uh, Suncorp game against the All Blacks where he got his red card. Uh, and Angus Bell really provided some nice strength off the bench when Slipper got injured. I've actually got Angus Bell as one of the higher rated of the debutants. I thought he's done an awesome job coming off the bench with pretty limited experience, um, holding up the scrum, in some cases pushing the scrum back to the opposition, and then just being an absolute menace in the loose. Like he's really not that far behind Tupo in terms of his ability to make a carry and break the line or just put the defenders back a few steps. I'd, I'd put him second behind Harry Wilson in terms of rating the new debutants. I thought he's phenomenal and getting better. I don't know how, but he's, his first game was unreal. And then on the weekend, he just gets – he's sort of – somehow when a ball goes to ground, he's the one that's there and he picks it up and he beats two defenders. It's just, it's pretty effortless the way he does it. Um, and he's just got plenty of work rate and you can just you can just tell like his head and his heart's in the right place and he's he just wants to play for his country. He'll, he wants to hang around and he's, uh, he's making all the right steps. Uh, I know when he first started, there were people calling him 100-test wallaby when he's in his first year of Super Rugby. Uh, and you can definitely see how that would how that could play out. Have you had a herbal tea this morning? Some like head in the heart in the right place. Have you you know a big <laughs> room or something? You very very spiritual of you. I just got a crush on Angus Bell. I think. That's yeah, it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, um, it'd actually be remiss of me. Just speaking of um, crushes, I know the Draft Rugby boys have a few of their own crushes, um, just based off what they can perform fantasy wise. Angus Bell's surely in the mix for that, not just for uh, us, but. Surely for them. So I just want to broach the topic now, just while we're on him. Um, I'd think looking at some of the players next year for Super Rugby AU, you're looking at your Taniela Tupos, Alan Alatobas, and Angus Bells as your some of your best props. Does Angus Bell rank a mention above those two? Will you be looking to draft him just because he's a Tars boy? Oh, I'd have him. I'd pick him in draft over Tupo for sure. Um, oh. I'd probably. I'd be happy with pretty much most of the Aussie props, to be honest. Alalatoa is probably the safest over the last four or five years. Very good work rate. And then Angus Bell I'd probably have as well. If I could get those two, I'd be very happy. Right. Okay. Good. Just taking down a few notes. Um, you're not in my pool for the comp, but, you know, it's still worthwhile noting what people are thinking. Um, outside of those six, so we mentioned six of the debutants, uh, there were four others. These four, um, I think, all made their debut in that third match, which was the absolute um, thumping we got in Sydney. So the 43-5 loss. So clearly um, that didn't go very well for them. Clearly that's meant that, you know, my thoughts on them are a little bit lower than perhaps some of the others. Um, and I'm keen to see whether this is a long-term thing or, you know, they maybe just didn't get as much game time um, because of the development, not because of that result. But in that match, we had Noah Lelessio start at uh, 10, in his debut, um, Ray Simone started at 12 in his debut, uh, and then Tate McDermott and Fraser McWright came off the bench. Um, I don't think I've seen enough from any of these guys to give them a rating probably, you know, above a 5 out of 10. Um, the last year, potentially even under just because his debut, it's a tough ask, but it wasn't great. Um, the one that stood out from those four to me uh, was Ray Simone, though. I thought he came on uh, for Jordi Patea at the end of that Pumas game and actually did really well. Like he actually ran the ball, uh, ball in both hands, didn't knock it on, but also put Paisami to space when they're going down the wing one side. Like 
he looks like he could be a pretty safe player and maybe a bit of an answer to that playmaker role. Like he, he's not a Tamua, he's not a um, Harrison or Lalesio in terms of his playmaking, but he does definitely have a good set of hands and a pretty decent kicking game. So um, what are your thoughts on those four? Uh, I think I think Simone is a good player. I think he probably didn't get you're not going to get your best opportunity when you're debuting outside of ten that's also on debut and that had a shocker. Um, I think I don't I don't think Lucio is a shocking player. I think he had this shocker of a debut. Um, and this, I think this he does sort fit of, your Harrison narrative though, doesn't it? Like this does fit the narrative of uh, the Waratahs ten perhaps deserving a crack. Yeah, I I well this year I think there's probably enough going on in the ten twelve mixing up that it probably. I mean, you could have just done whatever you wanted, really. There was, there was how many 10 12 combos were there this year? It was O'Connor Tamua, O'Connor Paisami, Lalesio Simone, uh, Hodge Paisami. Yeah, so four different starting combinations. Um, and then O'Connor Paisami. Yeah, it's just, it was just, there were so many, so many different combinations. You probably could have just done whatever you wanted with any of them, but I don't think it's really best to be throwing in those new players into combos that have never like combos around them that have never been there so i think like harrison got his two opportunities to start for australia a which i think is good um but i, I think he'll be a very good player in super rugby au next year um but i think i think simone just didn't really get the opportunity playing outside lesio and neither of them like they played together with the brumbies but probably only six or seven games together and then sort of thrown into versing the All Blacks with a completely completely new team and a pretty aggravated All Blacks. So, yeah, I, I think Simone went okay and he was definitely better against Argentina. Um, I think Fraser McRide, uh, and not that, uh, yeah, I, I think that was probably a waste of a cap. I think just save him for next year. He's in the Wallabies framework this year. He's doing lots of training, but I found it strange to give him one crack off the bench, not really get much of an opportunity when what Australia has been looking for is that six, eight, if that six or eight bench player that can come on and have a big impact when we've got Hooper who plays 80 minutes every single game or we've got Liam Wright who can double as a six and seven. So that to me was just a strange selection. And I mean, maybe it's he's got a cap now so that keeps him in Australia for a little bit longer. Versus if he doesn't get a cap for another two years, maybe that was the idea behind it. But I think that was a bit of a strange one when every other bench player was a revolving door of a big six or a, or a number eight potential um, to have Fraser come on and just play a bench seven role. You're right there because it was a, at least it seemed definitely like a, Oh, okay, we're just going to give everyone a chance and whoever impresses me the most can keep it kind of situation. Um, I don't think he needed to make his debut then. I think he's a great talent and I'm keen to see him in the future. Yeah. But you're right. I think having either Pete Sama, who, again, I don't know how he's overlooked, um, a nicer Rani, or again, just giving more minutes to Valentini, who actually turned out a really nice performance. Um, I, I think they would have been probably the better options then. But look, anyway, we'll move past that because we've got plenty of time to talk about our um, Wallabies players in future episodes. I'm keen to do a bit of a breakdown and see 
you know, who we're looking out for in future um, seasons, who we want to keep an eye on in Super Rugby AU. But for now, let's have a look at some of the listener questions because uh, we threw it out to Twitter and Instagram to see, um, you know, what people had, I guess, expressed from those um, from those games as a whole and in particular from our most recent draw with the Pumas. Um, and it got some great bites as well. So I would just go through some of these and I'll be keen to hear what you think about them. Um, over on uh, Instagram, we had Tess Carney come through. Um, I think you and I both agree in, oh, yeah, in, in no real competition, probably our, our favourite Carney, well above TK. Um, For sure. She's come out and said, um, what do you think about the unnecessary yellow cards? You know, how how appropriate were they to give out um, for Kremer, Hooper and uh, Paulos in that game? And then also the red card for Salakai Loto. Um, did you see those as yellow cards and red cards or it was a bit of overkill? I mean, yeah, what, what I've uh, realised in the last couple of years is that, it, like, I no, no, I didn't, but it just doesn't, doesn't matter because you continue to see cards that you don't think are cards. And the, the thing that I don't like with the situation is that I think for two of them, that they were TMO had come back and then they had to be watched 10 times. Like if yeah. the TMO is interjecting, it should be a blatant, oh, we, like you couldn't possibly, like the ref has just missed something blatantly that they should not have missed and it was horrible, like something off like off the ball. Ref was ref was following the ball somewhere else and someone's punched someone in the head or someone's got a knee or someone's come in the swinging elbow into a clean out. Not someone has come in for a clean out and there's about a millimetre between where they should have hit and where they hit. Yeah. I think I think that is a really poor use of TMO. Um, and unless someone as well, unless someone has gone down injured and or they're concussed or something, then you could look into why that is. But if someone is just the Hooper one was I found baffling. It's just that he's coming for a clean out. He couldn't really get any lower and he got maybe under the chin. I don't even think he got him on the chin, maybe under the chin and his yeah. body at the same time and the TMO came back after play had gone on and it was watched probably 10 times to see if it was anything. Look, that, that isn't how a TMO should be used. A TMO should be used. All right, there's definitely something back there. Um, we've looked at it and this is the outcome and you can see it once and the ref can make a decision. I think that's my issue as well. Look, I don't think the Kramer one should have been a yellow card. I think that was fine to just be a penalty. Um, sure, if you slow it down and watch it enough times and you go into the ladder of the law, um, there was a slight shift as it went from shoulder to head. But if that's the case, it's got to come down to changing the you know, ladder of the law because I think it was complete overkill to have that as a penalty um, that got turned into a yellow card. The issue then is that then sets the precedent. So because of what happened at Kremer, the same then had to happen at Hooper. As you said, Sanchez is over the ball. His head is where the ball is. Like his head is directly covering where the ball is. It's Hooper's job to protect the ball. He went as low as he possibly could have to try and remove Sanchez whilst freeing up the ball for his own team and ended up in a yellow card. So yeah, I think there does need to be some sort of changing around the terminology if that is the case, because unfortunately, by letter of the law, by the way the rules are written, um, they, they probably count as yellow cards, but the fact that it took that much deliberating over and so much inspecting I think makes it really evident that, you know, 
probably shouldn't have been um, checked in by the TMO. And then the problem I have with that is because of that precedent that's been set, I mean, Salakai Lodo's shot, which probably should have been a yellow card, or definitely should have been a yellow card, it then has to be a card because it's definitely worse than the previous two. Yeah. Right? So uh, Gardner's just really dug himself a hole by saying, okay, well, these guys did something very slightly um, badly. Um, so we're going to give them a yellow card. This guy's done something that is actually bad. Um, that would normally warrant a yellow, but I have to make it bigger than what's happened previously. So that, that's my concern from it. Um, on top of that, we've had questions come in. Uh, the last one from Instagram uh, was from our good mate, Dave. So Davis has, uh, I guess, given us two points of a question that we've, we've tried to address already, but we can definitely look into a bit more, which was what's Rennie's positive takeaway from this season? You know, it's his first season in charge. Um, what positives can he take away? And what's the biggest thing that he'll want to work on? Uh, I think some of the positives are that there is a crop of talent that can play. And we've got players that can beat the All Blacks and can draw with the All Blacks and also have not too many losses under their belt. Like the, the Australian team, like the win percentage of these younger players is much higher than it has been of those Australians that are coming through. And it's been said in the past that their team, the younger players have come through and they've sort of performed at under 18s level, performed at under 20s level, come into a Super Rugby AU and played well for their clubs. And then if you just take it as they came in and they beat the All Blacks and they drew with the All Blacks and then only lost one game in Tri-Nations, then that's okay. But then when you look at it a little bit further and you go, oh, well, they drew against Argentina twice in games that they should have won. And yeah, they didn't have that leader to stand up and turn that into a, like turn a winnable game into a win. Um, then that's a little bit negative, but I think there are still positives in terms of the crop of talent that we've got. Yes. There needs to be a lot of honing of skills probably more than anything else and some creation of combinations. But uh, I think, the responsiveness of the team to changes in positions and changes in combinations was overall quite good. Um, you, yeah, as we touched on before, the amount of times you can change your ten and twelve combination and still like and still play with some sort of cohesion is pretty. It's a pretty big ask when your sort of base of your of your attacking play is just completely changed, often due to injury, but then often just due to mixing it up. Uh, I, I think that's a pretty tough to ask. And I think defensively, we were better this year, aside from that one outlier game against the All Blacks. I think defensively, we were a better team. Um, Argentina usually scored tries on us, and they scored one in two games. Our, our attacking format was probably worse, but defensively, we were better set piece. By the end, we were improved. Um, and this is all with... You got to remember sometimes that this is all with a younger crop of players, and in combinations that we haven't really seen before. So it's not like this is our 2019 World Cup team, and there's sort of been four years to build to it, and we've ended on these players, and we've like these combinations have been planned out for a long time. This is trial and trial and error, really, and. Yes, there was error, but there's benefit in trialing a lot of the things that we trial. I think something that could be said on that is that in the one game that we did win this year, 
we actually had uh, scored less tries than New Zealand. So they scored three tries to two, it's just we have to kick better. So um, I agree that we're attacking, we're attacking worse. I think, yeah, our defence was good against Argentina. I think maybe we're getting good at a specific type of defence, um, but still trying to limit the mistakes and limit the All Blacks counter will be one of the big things. And I think uh, for me, Dave, that, that's what I want him to see as his biggest work on is how can we limit those sorts of scores and how can we limit those, um, I guess, small lapses in composure for the Wallabies? Because as we mentioned before, in that 27 to seven loss in um, uh, Auckland, it was really just that 10 minutes after halftime that looked bad. The rest of it, we were really looking quite on top of them for parts or at least equal to them. And we just let the game get out of hand then and really struggled to try and rein it back in. And then in that, um, you know, absolute monstrous performance they put on us um, in Sydney, we looked good for a small part. We came back in that second half and we looked like, no, no, we are able to um, hold it on with you guys and, you know, mix and match pretty comfortably. But they just let in too many trials beforehand. And when you're playing catch-up footy, you allow too many tries to be scored against you. So I think that's his biggest work. And the biggest positive, as we've said, is the number of plays he's had come through. I think he's got a really promising pack. Um, I think he's got a really exciting bunch of backs. And they're all quite young. So it's just now finding time to see, well, where do they all fit in? Um, how can we actually make this team you know, perform as good as they look on paper. Going to the Twitter questions, we had Dean come in. So um, at Dean Arrow, he's been great uh, just in terms of all sorts of feedback on Twitter. Um, he's asked who's the MVP of the six games for the Wallabies. So who's the player that's really um, held us together the most? I, I might get you to answer that one and I'll cover his other two questions. Um, MVP, I might go one forward, one back. And yeah. I'll say Nick White for back and Matt Phillip for forward, um, both in terms of expectation versus how they performed. I think Phillip, first of all, came in as a player, and I've said it before, he had two other cracks at the Wallabies before, and they were quite poor. He'd come yeah. off the bench, and he'd, he'd probably earned those games from good Super Rugby performances in those years, and he came on, and he did not send up to test level in the slightest. This year, I'd imagine he was our most runs for forwards. He was very involved. Um, his line-out stats tell a tale for the weekend. He was probably our go-to jumper, and he got very involved in defence and in attack uh, and didn't, didn't look out of place against some of the really good second rowers in, in Whitelock, Barrett, Tupelotto, Petty. So I think, I think he was sort of a success story this year. And then Nick White brought flair and brought width into our game that we didn't have otherwise. He's our, I would probably say he's our only good passer in the back line after Tamua left. Um, <laughs> and in, in the, yeah, in the two games, in the start of the Pumas game, the first one, the first 10 minutes, he was just passing so much, with so much more width and giving everyone so much more time. Um, and then also, I guess, in the first game against the All Blacks when we drew uh, in the Bledisloe, he is the reason that we drew. That was just individual brilliance from him. Um, so I think like he did have a couple of not so good games in there as well, but I think 
um, in terms of direction when he had a pretty inexperienced team outside him um, and just having that much better passing opportunity. You see like the, the difference in class between when, when Gordon comes on versus when White plays. Um, and Gordon is a good player. So Gordon is a very good super rugby player. Um, but then you see White in a test match and you go, okay, White is a very good test player. Yeah. So I, I, I'd say him in the back line and, and Philip in the, in the full pack. Nice. Well, I, I like the approach you've taken because I was going to do the same thing with the um, next question, which is great because we, we haven't actually discussed that. But um, Dean also asked who the biggest surprise player was. And if I'm following that same format, I think Matt Phillip definitely earns up for the forwards. Um, he came in with next to no expectation to perform, but obviously a need to, given we'd lost so many of our um, Wallabies locks to overseas clubs. Um, we really need someone to step up. I thought it was going to be Salakai Lotto that did that, but Philip really took that um, position and nailed it down. Like he, he started every match there. A lot of the time he played 80 minutes there. He, he really had some great performances in what was, you know, pretty clearly our weakest position. Um, for the backs, it's got to be Hunter Paisami. I thought he was going to, you know, probably play one game um, at 13. Then we'd have Patea come back and he might get a go on the bench. Um, but what we ended up seeing was Tamil get injured and he filled into the 12 role and actually made the centers look a lot easier than others have. He came in and did a better job than Patea did. He came in and, you know, carried the ball well, uh, created a bit of space for some of the other players. And even though we didn't really get to capitalize on it, um, he showed that he's really going to be quite a handy option to have either at 12 or 13 in future years. So to me, he, Really stood out there. Um, I'd um I'd add to that that Patea was the biggest surprise back for me in terms of <laughs> a pessimistic approach. Yeah, yeah, underwhelming true. massively. Yeah, there was no specification as to whether it was a good or a bad surprise, so I completely take that on board. I'm not going to be too harsh on Patea because he had um what I'd like to call an absolute shit show of a game, but he also is a young man who's just got his you know feet on the ground he's really just playing his first lot of consistent consecutive matches um and his biggest issue is the expectation that people are putting on him so i'm having exactly right a bit more and that's that's just that that is uh purely underwhelming just because of what i expected of him and because of what he delivered in the very few minutes that he played in the past yeah. not underwhelming in terms of of 20-year-old that is playing for the Wallabies in outside centre, one of the hardest positions to play in a team with very little experience around him. So yeah. definitely not not like a, his career is written off or anything like that. I just I just thought that he um, would have, yeah, I just thought he would have made a, a few better decisions. Yeah. Um, but I guess how can you really expect that from a bloke that has really not played much at that level? Look, I'll quickly go through Dean's last question because um, we're probably stretching these out further than we should be. But um, he's also asked which players are in their last Wallabies camp. So um, Rennie obviously had quite a large squad. He wanted to see a few different people. There's a few players that he didn't even end up using. Um, I think two that stand out, um, Jermaine Ainsley. So he's an okay prop. Uh, who's spent a lot of time at the Rebels. He's going overseas now to the Highlanders, which um, will make him an eligible. So that sort of 
takes him out of contention anyway. But to be honest, I never really saw him getting another chance um, at the Wallabies jersey. I know he's had a few cracks before. I, I think he's uh, someone that came in and looked like he could be quite a promising long-term option um, without ever really wowing me. He's never really looked that stable in the scrums. He doesn't have that loose running game like some of our other props have. So I don't think we'll see him in the squad again. And then the other one is Rob Simmons, who heads overseas. He's still very much eligible because of the Gitto law. Um, he's you know, played over 100 test caps, so he could very easily come back and step in. But I, I get the feeling that we'll be using that um, new clause to try and get a Rory Arnold or a Will Skelton or an Isaac Rodder back over here if uh, we don't end up signing them for a Super Rugby AU side. And I just don't really see him as being the, the impact player that you, you bring back in. So I'd say the, the two that we might not see in the Wallabies camp again. Um, if I was to make a potentially, you know, outrageous or contentious call, I would say maybe a Joe Powell or an Issy Nicerani, two players who I think should be in squads. But, you know, if they've had the chance this year, we've seen running go through so many back row options and not even really consider Nicerani. Um, we've seen... McDermott and Gordon split game time off the bench, but none given a power. Um, if I was being cynical, I might put those in, but I'd like to think that they put themselves into future Wallabies spots. Yeah, I, I think I'd probably leave it at, at Simmons and Ainsley as well. No one else really to add. I think Powell probably get a good crack at the Rebels and will probably be playing with Timor. So that'll be mm. that'll be pretty good to see, and that might be a combination that that Rennie and the selectors really like. Um, and then nice around, he should definitely be there always. I don't know why he wasn't. That leads us to the next point, just by mentioning Powell's center the Rebels. Uh, we also had Mark come in, um, Mark DH on Twitter, who asked um, two questions. Um, the one specifically Rebels related is, where do you see Hodge playing in 2021, both at the Rebels and the Wallabies? Um, just if I'm to go through, and you might be able to see on my screen, I'm hoping that comes up. Um, the Rebels have a lot of players um, switching in and out of the club. So they've lost a lot of players. They've gained a lot of players. Um, I guess not many huge names coming in other than Joe Powell, but they've got Lewis Holland and Lockie Anderson from the Aussie Sevens. Uh, they've got young Tonomea Payer from um, the NRL. He was a Gold Coast Titans player. And they've also got um, Ilakina Vidogo from... Uh, the Broncos. So he wasn't a regular player, he was just in their squad, but they don't have a lot of um, outside backs coming into replace the likes of um, Samisi Tupo and Callaway, and then Bill Meeks and Tom English in the center. So for me personally, I probably see Reese Hodges' best position at the Rebels um, as being either a 13 or a right wing, just because they need people to fill those spots. But I wouldn't at all be surprised if he is either a 10 or 12 um, with Matt Tamua now that um, Andrew Deegan's left. You know, they've signed Carter Gordon and Mason Gordon to really promising young Brisbane um, fly halves, but I just don't see them getting game time to start off with. So if I had to choose, I'd have a minute uh, 13. But, you know, he really can play anywhere. And again, this is why Mark's asked a question. It's the biggest problem is where do we actually put him so that he can develop uh, for the Wallabies? Um, I think I think Campbell will play thirteen, and I think oh, Campbell maybe that is, and I think 
don't have a petty will most likely, probably in a cynical way, will probably spend a bit of the season injured, which has been the story of his last couple of years. So I think I wouldn't be surprised if Hodge is 15 uh, and then you've got either Tamu at 12 and one of the young guns at 10 or Tamu at 10 and Hodge at 12. Um, or some combination around Tamur and Hodge being the two playmakers, either 10 yeah. and 12. Or, but I, I, it just depends on DHP's health, I guess. But he hasn't been in good nick for the last sort of 18 months. So I don't yeah. know how that's going to be turned around to a full season rapidly. Yeah. I actually like your line of thinking. I, I'd prefer him to get some game time at 15 because I think that's probably his best position and the position that could end up helping the Wallabies the most. Um, just, just because we don't seem to have a standout option there. Realistically, his kicking is the only thing keeping him in that same team. I don't think he offers enough to be starting for the Wallabies. I still stand by that, even though I've been really impressed with his kicking to keep us in. I think we just need to buy the bullet with whether it's Lelesio or Connor or Harrison, whoever's going to be that um, 10 for us next year. Um, they need to say, I'm taking the kicking because we just need to get our best players on the field in their best position. And I think Reese Hodge does a great job as a bench player who can cover all those spots. I don't think he's the best um, player in any one of these positions. And I think really, because we don't know what's going to happen with all these sevens players and um, NRL converts, I would think Hodge probably has a best shot at playing if he's playing on the right wing. But yeah, as you say, it, there's so many options for him. Um, I would probably just hope that he's right wing. Or 13. Yeah. I mean, no, there's, there's just too many options for him, I think. It's his issue. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I'd, be pretty, I'd be pretty sad as a Wallabies fly half to be spe- sent to the Rebels' wing, I think. Yeah. And, and look, Mark, sorry, we haven't answered that question before because it, that is the, the biggest issue we've got is that Hodge can fit in anywhere. As someone that's not a Rebels fan, I find it hard to see where I'd actually want him to play. I think if we're looking at what sets up their team to have the best chance of winning. I don't think it's at 10 because I think Tamu is a better 10. I don't think it's at 12. Although if Tamu is at 10, he probably is the best 12 there. I think he probably just offers the most um, at fullback or 13 where he is a really sound defender and can kick or keep the ball alive if he needs to. The last thing that uh, Mark put in there, um, is Patea best suited as a 13 or could he potentially be the answer at 15? Um, one of the reasons why this is asked is because obviously with Hunter Paisami playing so well and Hamish Stewart really, you know, having quite a good Super Rugby AU season, there's a lot of people still pushing for um, Stewart to start at 12 and Paisami could start at 13, which would then potentially move Patea to fullback given that Dalgunu and uh, Vunavalu presumably have the wings locked down. Um, we don't need to spend too much time on that one just because I don't think I've seen enough of him to say that he's a 15. Um, it, it might be worthwhile trialling, but I, I think you still stick him at 13 and you have to make a tough call on either Stewart or Paisami at 12. And at the moment, it'd be Paisami. Yeah, I, I think I think leave him at, at 13 for the time being. Uh, they've still got a couple of like Hegarty and Campbell are still good options at the Reds for 15. And I think P- Patea, I, I like the look of him as a 13. I like the size of him. He can defend well enough. He just needs to improve his handles and some better decision making. But I mean, that's that'll come. 
He's still he's still young. Fifteen. I I don't. Yeah, I haven't seen enough yet. I know he played some schoolboy footy at fifteen, and he's played some NRC at fifteen, and he's he's pretty. He's pretty much good at every level he plays at. And he's, regardless of the position, he's probably going to beat some defenders. He's going to get some space. Um, it would just be interesting to see the combination of Paisami and Patea if they can develop it. If Paisami can be that crash ball option that can also bring on another player. And, like, I mean, ideal scenario, Paisami would play a bit of a non role where early doors of their careers are a crash ball and a hard hitter. And then they become a playmaker and a pretty tactful kicker. and can bring on some other players as well. Uh, it's it's massive shoes to fill, but uh, that would be that would be the dream scenario. Uh, and I think Patea at the moment it's probably he's probably a thirteen, I would say. But uh, and and that's an open position in the Wallabies really at the moment. So it's sort of you could you could have Patea, Paisami, or Hodge, uh, and I'd say Patea, despite a couple of couple of not the best efforts in Tri-Nations this year. If I'm talking 2023 World Cup, he's probably the front runner, I'd say. The person that I want there the most. Yeah. Look, we uh, we said before we started recording that we'd try to keep it to 45 minutes. We've ticked over an hour, so we're really just seeing our showing our, um, <laughs> our routine and our discipline with our structure. But, um, you know, it's hard to keep it contained when we're talking all things rugby. You know, so I'm glad we're able to get through that much. I'm glad we're able to break down um, the Wallabies in their season because while it's not a great season of results, it is great that we got a season of rugby and it's looking really promising for next year in terms of what we're expecting to see in uh, Super Rugby AU and then hopefully getting a full test window um, into us with a rugby championship that includes South Africa and hopefully an end-of-year tour if that's at all possible. So, um, as always, mate, great talking to you. Uh, thanks for joining me um, and we'll talk to you again next week I'm sure as we try and break down a few more things rugby related.